Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 30, brought to you by Jesus Centered Resources, which may one day be an actual thing. <laughs> we'll see. Um, right now, it's just the uh, placeholder name I've uh, put on this podcast and other stuff I'm doing is I'm developing uh, new resources and new ways to connect. So for now, let's just call it Jesus Centered Resources. Well, my name is Rick. I'm author of lots of books, um, especially in the last 15 years. I think I've authored 10 books, 11 books, something like that in the last 15 years. You can go check them out if you go to ricklawrence.com. I have a whole section there that gives you an overview of all of the books that I've that I've written. Well, not all of them, actually. Um, there's some pretty obscure ones. So <laughs> uh, I, I give you an overview of the higher profile ones. So you can go to ricklawrence.com and check those out if you'd like. But I have uh, the Jesus Center Daily, a 365-day devotional coming out in just about uh, five weeks. October 6th is when it comes out. So I'm very excited. I got some advanced copies of it. And oh, I have to tell you guys, I just love this. I mean, I, I know it sounds funny coming from the person who wrote it, but Actually, after you've written a book, this is a little known secret if you're not an author, after you've written a book, when you go back to it, you engage the book as if you didn't write the book. You're, you're a reader then. And so now I'm a reader and I just really, really enjoy the experience of reading this, this daily devotional. So as I said, it comes out October 6th. And guess what? Only this morning, I finished building this little website for the Jesus Center Daily, and it's live. You can go there and see a little video of me introducing it um, and walking a forested path near my house. Um, you, can, you can download a 10-day sample of the devotion. So uh, that alone is worth going to the website. You can download right now the first 10 days of the Jesus Center Daily. Just go to jesuscenteredaily.com. Yeah, believe it or not, I got the website, jesuscenteredaily.com, and it's now live. I built that thing myself, and you'll probably see that when you get there, but I am quite proud of what I was able to do. So <laughs> anyway, head on over to jesuscenteredaily.com. You can get an overview uh, and some early endorsements for the, for the uh, devotion. And uh, as I said, download a sample. So go head on over there. And um, also, uh, on that note, I've been telling you about this, this uh, new story Bible for adults called Eyewitness that my friend Jeff White has created. And I've been telling you for several weeks now about uh, you've got to go check this book out. Um, the website for uh, Eyewitness, by the way, is, is called experienceeyewitness.com, experienceeyewitness.com. You really should head over there and take a look at this beautiful, incredible, one-of-a-kind book. And next week... I'll have Jeff White, the author, on my podcast. Uh, it will be, we will have a great conversation about authenticity, which is really the, the, the goal of this adult story Bible. So if you would like to be on the pre-launch team for experience, for, for eyewitness, 
uh, there's still time uh, if you jump on it now. So just head on over to um, the, uh, the site for this episode. Again, this, you're going to go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. And then you're going to look for season five, episode 30. And then you're going to scroll down and find the link um, to join the pre-launch team for this, uh, for this special book, Eyewitness. What does it mean to join the pre-launch team? It, it's pretty simple. You just, uh, you're, you're going to get an early copy of it before everyone else is able to get it. And you'll get free shipping with that. And all they ask in return is that you post a review on Amazon. Pretty simple. So, and it won't be hard once you get your copy and crack it open. It'll be hard to put down. So, uh, again, head on over to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com. Look for season five, episode 30, and then the link to join the pre-launch team. You'll also find the link there to the jesuscenterdaily.com. Um, so, uh, if, if you want to access it from, from the, uh, the Pain Ridiculous website, you could do that too. Or just head on over there yourself. So, we're 10 episodes into a series that I'm calling In His Image. We're essentially exploring that phrase in Genesis 1 where God says he makes uh, mankind in his own image. And this is one of those times when we, we've heard this so often that we think we know what this means and we just jump right over it. But if you slow down a minute, you think, huh. What does it really mean to be created in the image of a God we can't see? And really, uh, it, what it comes down to is that God is saying he's given us his essence, that when you look at us, you get a lot of the essence of who God is. And uh, for some of us, that's hard to believe. <laughs> but he said it, and that's what we're exploring. And Jesus told us uh, that if you've seen him, then we've, then we've seen the Father that we can't see. And this is really why this podcast has the focus it does. The more we focus on Jesus, the more we come to know God. It's as simple as that. And that's why we're leaning into Jesus and slowing down to pay ridiculous attention to him. To, and today, in this episode, we're going to explore another aspect of uh, the essence of Jesus and how it's reflected in who we are. So today we'll explore present I don't mean like Christmas presents. I mean, I mean present, that there is a past and a future and a present. And one strong characteristic of Jesus is that he, he lives in the present and invites us to live there too. The problem is that we have a tendency as human beings to gravitate to the past or the future, and it distracts us from the present. So we're going to explore how Jesus lived in the present, what that means, what that exactly means, what he did with the past and the future, because he didn't ignore the past and the future. We're going to explore how those past and futures are connected to, related to the present in him. And then we'll see how this is reflected in our own life. I think this is a really important episode um, because uh, this is one of those uh, issues that you're probably not that aware of in your own life. You're probably not aware of how much you live your life in the past or in the future. You're probably unaware of how often you take yourself out of the present moment and you're living in two, un two unrealities, either the past that you cannot live in any longer or the future that doesn't yet exist. So let's launch into this episode with 
a little exploration of what you might call a semi-cultural edible tradition. <laughs> what could that be? Fortune cookies. Uh, so uh, my family uh, and I took my daughter Lucy on her 22nd birthday to our very first time during this entire pandem pandemic where we actually went to a restaurant and sat outside on their very large porch. Um, we really haven't sat inside a restaurant in five months. And we, we have eaten outside, we've taken it to go, we've done all that stuff, but we haven't actually sat down at a restaurant in that length of time. And this was a special occasion and we went to a restaurant called P.F. Chang's. Um, absolutely no promotional consideration for P.F. Chang's has exchanged hands. <laughs> we just went there because we love it and my daughter Lucy really loves it. And they had a really large outdoor porch that where we could sit with our family and Lucy's best friend and enjoy um, normalcy again. <laughs> so of course at P.F. Chang's, um, at the end of every meal, you get a fortune cookie. It's part of the tradition. And it, it's a little bit of a misnomer. If you've had a fortune cookie lately, you know, when you crack them open and read the fortune inside, it's not really a fortune. It's more like a inspirational saying. Um, here are some popular fortune cookie fortunes, um, by the way, just to kind of uh, whet the appetite for them. Here's the first one. A beautiful, smart, and loving person will be coming into your life. Wow. I can't wait for that to happen. A beautiful, smart, and loving person will be coming into your life. I hope it's my wife. <laughs> I can pretty much guarantee that fortune is going to come true today. Uh, here's another one. A dubious friend may be an enemy in camouflage. Uh-oh. Do you have dubious friends? Make a list of them right now. One of those might be an enemy. Or here's another one. A faithful friend is a strong defense. See, now that's a great example of how these fortune cooking sayings aren't really fortunes. That's just sort of an aphorism. It's, a, it's an inspirational statement. It's a truism. It's a, I don't know what it is. A faithful friend is a strong defense. Of course, it's true, but it doesn't really give you a sense of the future. Um, here's another one. A fresh start will put you on your way. Oh, a fresh start will put you on your way. We're not sure what the way leads to, but it will put you on it. Here's one last one. A friend asks only for your time, not your money. That's interesting. So that's a sort of a, a wise saying, I would call that, not a fortune. Um, but most of these uh, fortunes um, either do that, they're just a wise saying or a wise reminder, or they have a mild sense of something that might happen in your near future. So when you open a fortune cookie and you read your fortune, how much does it actually impact you? You know what I mean? Like, like when I read um, a, a fresh start will put you on your way, do I really think about that after I've read it? Do I really consider that that thing might be true? I think this happens more often than you realize that when we read a fortune cookie saying, even though we know these things are just mass-produced, generic, inspirational things. The, the promise of somebody telling us something about our future is almost too hard to resist, isn't it? That even when you know it's, it's sort of ridiculous, we're still somehow magnetically drawn to these little fortunes. And I think it's because there's something wired in us that always wants to see beyond the horizon. We, we always want the, the assurance of 
good things in the future or the warning of bad things in the future, right? Um, we can't help ourselves. So when we think about the future right now, when you think about your future, on a scale of one to 10, how stressed are you about it? I would think that the higher you are on that scale, the closer you are to 10, the more you might be open to a positive fortune cookie saying, <laughs> because it promises to relieve the pain and stress of what you think you're headed into. Um, and we're, we so much hate waiting for a stressful future to come our way. We just wanna know. Like when you have something medically wrong with you and you don't know what it is, and you're worried and you can't sleep at night, you just wanna know what it is. You know that it could be bad news or it could be that you're, you're overreacting and it's, and it's not nearly as bad as you imagine. But either way, the stress of waiting is really hard. Future holds this kind of leverage on us. So when we find ourselves obsessing about the past or the future, does that tend to reduce our stress or produce more stress? You know what I mean? Like when you think about the, your past and you live there because of something that's happened, either either on one hand, a trauma or a difficulty, or on the other hand, something that you look back on with, with great affection. Um, what, what does that do in you? Um, I think I could make a case that whether you go back to the past to, to kind of wallow around in the, the joyful season of your life that pops up for you, or whether you go back to your past to relive a stress or a challenge or a trauma that you experienced back then. In, in both cases, um, it's tough for that journey to relieve any stress in the present. I mean, sometimes I think about when I was a kid and my family used to go to the Grand Tetons in Wyoming for our annual family vacation. And we had this special uh, connection, relational connection with an old mountain man who had, um, retired and kept this one piece of land that he had owned, sold off all the rest, but kept this one prime piece of land that was just in the most beautiful location. You could walk right from his, right from his camp into the mountains. It was just beautiful. And he started building these housekeeping cabins on this chunk of land. Uh, a river ran right through the middle of the land. Um, and eventually he built about 25 of these cabins. And you could stay there if you knew him and he invited you to come. And then you would pay him to stay for however long you were going to stay. And that was his income. And my family somehow knew this guy. And so every summer we got to go to this idyllic, unbelievable uh, mountain retreat. And sometimes, and now that that place was um, sort of taken over by the government about 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And um, they, they tore down everything on it and returned it to its natural state. So it doesn't even exist any longer. And I, I feel kind of a pang in my heart whenever I think about that. I went to go visit the place uh, when I was in college because my roommates had heard so much about it. And I went with one of my roommates on a road trip and um, went to the land and just, uh, I, I was almost surreal. Uh, I couldn't believe that everything was gone. But sometimes I travel back in my memory to those blissful nights uh, spent around the campfire playing frisbee in a huge meadow or uh, walking into the hills to go fishing with my dad. And I lived there for a minute. And it, it, it's sweet to go back to that place. But when I come back to reality, 
it doesn't have a lasting impact on me um, as far as um, relieving any stress I feel in the, in the present. The only, the only time that I feel that sort of relief is when I'm obsessively living back there, <laughs> but it doesn't carry that forward into the present. It actually can make things more stressful because it makes me wish that I was back there and it makes me dis disconnected and disrespectful of the present. Um, and the same thing can happen in the future. Um, I have a, a, a friend who um, told me that when he was in college, one of his professors, uh, the way he dealt with his stress is, and he told the class this all the time, he was always planning his future vacation. And he would go into great detail about all of the different ways that he was planning his vacation. And, and my friend realized that the way that this man dealt with his stress and anxiety was to um, obsess about something, some happy moment in the future to take him out of the present. I also think that doesn't do the trick as far as uh, relieving the stress of the moment. Uh, I think it just makes us less content in the present. So let's, uh, let's in this episode explore Jesus's relationship with the past, present, and future. And let's, let's learn from him how to maintain a childlike focus on the present. Because this, this, as I mentioned before, is huge for our, our way of living. If we're going to live in the kingdom of God, we're going to have to learn to live in the present. We'll explore that further. But we're going we're gonna to do this through the portal of, of taking a look at some stories of Jesus when he's focusing either on the past in that story or the present or the future. So we're going to take one story from each each of those sort of categories and slow down and pay attention to uh, what we can learn about his attitude toward the past, present, and future. Our goal is to dig into each story and determine why Jesus is spotlighting something about the past or present or future. What, what is his motivation for targeting that thing in that person's past, present, or future? So that's what we're going to do. Let's, let's get started with a story from the past. Let's Let's try, <clears throat> first of all, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. This is like a classic story of Jesus bringing up the past for some reason. So let's go ahead and read this story from John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 18. So this is just a portion of the story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to take a chunk right out of the middle. So if you're not driving and you want to crack open your, your Jesus-centered Bible to John chapter 4, go ahead and do that now. Here we go. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize him, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, you know, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep, she said. 
Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Well, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. Um, I, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. All right, there you go. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So um, when we dive into this story, it takes a, uh, f uh, uh, for the, from the woman's perspective, it takes a kind of a nasty little turn there at the end when he in invites her inexplicably to go and get her husband. So Jesus here is very purposefully trying to drag this woman's past up into the light. He's, he's very purposefully trying to um, get this woman to dive deeply back into her past. And why is the question. Why would he introduce this tangent all of a sudden in this conversation? Why would he do this? Um, she says, I, I don't have a husband. And that's the portal for Jesus to say, that's right. You've had a pretty spotty past, haven't you? So the point here is that Jesus could have left the past alone and had a normal standard interaction with this woman. Instead, he on purpose sort of invites that woman to head down a path back into her past. He, for some reason, very much wants her past on the surface before they go a step further. So if we, if we were considering the question, or maybe let's, let's put it this way. If we were going to finish this, this sentence, how would we finish it? Jesus believes it's important to focus on our past only when what? Jesus believes it's important to focus on our past only when what? Um, if we take it just from this story, I think what we can extract here is that Jesus thinks it's important to focus on our past only when it will lead to healing in our present. So here Jesus is wanting this woman to dip back into her past to go back over the story of her woe and her trauma and the difficulty and challenges she's faced in her life because he has a heart for her healing. He wants her to be free in the present moment. And to do that, she has to revisit her past. So this is probably true for you too. I know it's been true for me that I've had to revisit my own past in my life to find wholeness and healing in my present. But when I travel back to my past, it's, it's intentionally for my healing, meaning I'm traveling back there not to extract life from my past or not to camp out in my past. It's to go back and chew on things that I didn't chew enough on at the time, or it's to go back to resolve some trauma or challenge in my young life that I wasn't able to as a kid. It's to go back as an adult and reconsider these moments so that as an adult, a follower of Jesus, I can find a greater level of healing 
and redemption and restoration from those things that as a child, I just wasn't able to or wired to overcome. So it is important to go back to the past to bring up those things that continue to be a source of pain and, and a source of trouble in our, in our present life for the purpose of dragging them up out of the cellar so that Jesus can, in the light, start to burn away the toxicity from those past experiences, um, to try to redeem what was meant for evil into good, to try to refashion what was ugly into something beautiful. This is the heart of Jesus. He wants us to be free in the present moment. And sometimes, in order for us to be free in the present moment, he will take us back into our past and resurface something very painful to us so that he can get his scalpel on it again. Now, in my experience uh, living my life, I've had to loop back to my past in different seasons of my life. And I often will think, oh, really? Again? I thought I'd left that behind. But what I discover is, yes, I'd left some of that behind. Some of that past trauma had been dealt with, but there's an aspect of it that wasn't. And so Jesus, because he loves me, just as he loved the Samaritan woman at the well, brings it up. He volunteers it. <laughs> he invites us to go back there and to, to go back there for the purpose of finding freedom in the moment or to learn from whatever happened back then. Now that we're progressed in our relationship with him and have a greater level of maturity, maybe our learning can be different this time around. So that's why he takes us back to the past. Now let's explore in a similar way um, a story from the future, but uh, not from the future, but where Jesus spotlighted the future. Let's explore one of those stories first, and then we'll, we'll tackle one where he's focusing on the present. So <clears throat> um, let's, let's, let's do a classic one here. This is from John chapter 15. Now, John 15 um, and everything surrounding it is one long foray into the future. Jesus is uh, hanging out with his disciples right before, um, right before he heads to the cross. And he's wanting to give them a picture of what their future is going to look like. And <clears throat> let's listen to what he says to them and then explore why he's doing this. So this is from John chapter 15, and uh, we're going to do something a little different here. We're going to bridge two chapters in John. So we're going to read from John 15, 18 through 27. That's the end of the chapter. And we're going to include a portion of the start of chapter 16. Um, so we're just going to bridge over the, uh, the edge of uh, chapter 15 and 16 uh, to not break up the narrative that Jesus has here. So the, in my Jesus-centered Bible, this section is subtitled, The World's Hatred. Here we go, uh, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. <laughs> the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. And since they persecuted me, naturally, they're going to persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all of this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. 
They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. Now this fulfills what is written in their scriptures. They hated me without cause. But I'm going to send you the advocate, the spirit of truth, he will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. And you must also testify about me because you've been with me from the beginning of my ministry. I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. Listen, you're going to be expelled from the synagogues. And the time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. Let's just stop right there. So here, this is a complicated section here where Jesus is speaking in a kind of a really blunt way with his disciples. He's telling them, look, the, the truth is because you love me and you're in me and you follow me um, and the world hates me, they're going to hate you too. And their, and their hatred is going to lead to you being expelled from the synagogue, which was, by the way, the, like the worst social thing that could happen to you. This is like being expelled from your community, that you're not allowed to be with your family and friends in the synagogue, that you're not allowed to be in the place of learning, uh, in the place of growth, in the place of community. It's a, it, you would, you will, you're going to become social outcasts, is essentially what Jesus is saying here. Uh, so they're going to expel them from the synagogues for sure. And then he's also intimating that people are going to try to kill them and some will succeed um, thinking that they're serving God as they do it. They're going to be thinking that they're doing a good thing while they're aiming to kill the disciples. And, and Jesus is telling them this in a blunt way. For what purpose? Why? Why would he scare them like this? This is some scary stuff he's sharing with them. And he, he kind of comes right out and tells them, he says in verse four of chapter 16, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you'll remember my warning. When they happen, you'll remember my warning. So here Jesus is dragging them into the future, kind of confronting them with their future because he's trying to warn them. And why is he warning them? Because the truth he's warning them about is a necessary truth for them to embrace. Um, uh, an example of this is, let's say your, um, well, my daughters were both cross-country runners when they were in high school. And uh, cross-country is a really demanding sport. It really requires a lot of courage to run 3.2 miles with a bunch of others who are uh, trying to beat you. And uh, if you've ever run fast, uh, three miles, you know that there's many moments where you, you just think, can I do this? Can I keep going? I'm really at the edge of myself. It, it takes a lot of courage to be a cross-country runner. That's what I learned from watching my daughters run. And one of the things that coaches would do before they ran a, a, a certain course is they would tell them in advance about all of the difficult stretches of the run. Like, you know, there's a 6% grade hill right in the middle of this. So get ready. You, you need to have some reserve when you hit that hill. Um, 
And I just want you to know ahead of time, it's going to hit you at about the 1.5 mile mark. So I, I heard coaches over the years talk through the course with their runners, letting them know what difficulties they were going to face on those particular courses. Why did he do that? Because he was trying to help them gear up for the trouble that was to come to not spend all of their reserves in advance, but save some for the challenge that they were about to face um, and to sort of seed their courage early on for what they would have to face. So this is what love does, by the way. Love doesn't take away the hardship, but it does try to help us prepare for the hardship to, to somehow um, have the resources that we're going to need to face into that hardship. So, um, and, and when Jesus is telling them about what they're going to face, he's also pointing out that their love for him is going to have consequences, that this is not just a no-cost commitment that they've entered into. He wants them to know that, uh, that their connection to him has to go deeper than a circumstantial one, meaning what they get out of it that what he's inviting them into is a deep, intimate love relationship where these consequences that happen as a result of it um, are going to happen, but he knows that they will lean into those consequences anyway because of the nature of the relationship he's established with them. So in a sense, he's saying, hey, the thing we have together, it is intimate. And because of that, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen as a result. But hey, I, I want to tell you something. You're not going to be alone as you head through this. You will not be alone and isolated. I'm going to send you, and he calls him, calls the Holy Spirit here, the advocate, which is a great name to call the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the spirit of truth. And he says, the advocate will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. So he's saying, you're going to have a companion along the way. Who will, who will remind you of my heart, remind you of my love for me, remind you of why I reached out to invite you into relationship in the first place. He'll remind you of me. He'll be your companion when you're in the middle of these challenges and struggles. When you're facing down, even death, the advocate will be with you, there to help you bridge over the terrifying experience you're about to have into a, a place of rest and refuge. I will not leave you alone. So this is so typical of Jesus. He's blunt about reality. He doesn't sugarcoat things. But he also at the same time says, I'm not going to leave you there alone. I will be for you in the middle of whatever you're facing. So um, Jesus believes it's important to focus only on... Uh, to, uh, let me say it a different way. Jesus believes it's important to focus on our future only when what? Only when, well, we need to be prepared for something in the present. Let's put it that way. He, he thinks it's important to focus on our future only when focusing on the future will help us prepare better in the present. Can you see the threads coming through here that when he focuses on the past, it has a direct connection to the present. And when he focuses on the future, it has a direct connection to the present. So now let's, let's tackle one more story of uh, Jesus focusing someone's attention 
on the present. Let's read from John chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. This is Jesus and Peter on the beach on the Sea of Galilee after Jesus' resurrection and when Peter and the disciples have been out all night fishing because they don't know what to do now. Uh, they're not really sure what their job description is supposed to be now that Jesus has risen from the dead. And um, they fish all night, catch nothing. Jesus tells them to throw the net over the side of the boat and they catch a big, huge haul and they have breakfast together on the beach. And then uh, Jesus sort of pulls Simon Peter aside and has a little business to do. What's interesting about this story is that uh, uh, it involves the past, present, and future, all of them in this one little story. We're going to touch on the past and future, but will really spotlight the present in this story. So John chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Oh, yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him, follow me. When Peter turned around and he saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, which is how John referred to himself, by the way. So Peter turns around and he sees behind him the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? And Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So here we have um, Jesus, as I said, dipping into the past in the, in the first part of this encounter. He's, he's really uh, asking Peter three times if he loves him because he's connecting this moment to that moment in the courtyard of Caiaphas when Peter denies Jesus three times before the crucifixion. He's dragging up this past trauma where Peter did something that he, that he so vehemently disrespects in himself. Peter does something he vowed he would never do. And Jesus wants to make sure that there's nothing left over from that experience. He wants to drag it back out of the cellar and bring healing one more time before he leaves. And in the way that he does this is so beautiful and so artistic. He asks him three times, do you love me? Knowing that by the third time, it's really going to smart. And each time after Peter responds, Jesus gives him something to do in the future. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. He's reiterating to Peter, your identity and your purpose, the thing I've called you to still exists. And I'm trusting you and investing uh, responsibility in you to take care of my sheep in the future. He's painting for Peter a picture of his future life. 
But when he does that, he's also investing in him his trust, his passion, his belief in Peter. And this is necessary to do because Peter lost trust in himself because of his betrayal. And Jesus is reflecting back to him, you may have, but I haven't. I believe in you, Peter. So, so Jesus is dragging this thing from Peter's past into the present to find greater healing and freedom from the captivity of that because Peter's going to need freedom in order to step into the role that he's been given by Jesus. And then once this uh, business of the past is dealt with and Jesus has hinted and planted seeds about the future in him, Peter uh, gets distracted. Now here Peter is sharing one last intimate conversation with Jesus before Jesus ascends to his father. Uh, this is his last real time with him. And it's amazing. This is so human. <laughs> Peter quickly gets uh, distracted. When Jesus tells him the manner in which he's going to die, another projection into the future. You know, Peter had always said, I will die for you, Jesus. And then he didn't. And, and Jesus, in his sly way, tells Peter, hey, you know that thing you, you always identified with and said, absolutely, you're going to die for me? And then you didn't? Well, guess what? You're going, to do, you're going to die for me. You're going to actually be crucified, Peter, on my behalf. Congratulations. <laughs> so, so Jesus, again, is painting for him a picture of what's going to happen in the future. And in a bizarro way, Jesus is telling Peter, you are the man that you always thought you were. And actually, you're better than that. You're a better man than you thought you were. You're the man I think you are. And that man is going to die on a cross for me in the future. This had a profound, I'm sure, impact on the depth of Peter's heart. Um, it restores his true identity to him when, when Jesus lets him know what's going to happen to him. And then Peter gets distracted. And he looks behind him and he sees John and he, and he says, uh, hey, what about him though? And Jesus replies, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So think about this for a second. Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, don't get distracted by somebody else's story right now. Don't get distracted by what the future holds for that guy. I just told you what your future holds so that in this present moment, you would know better how to walk, how to prepare, what I think of you, what I expect of you, what I'm going to partner with you to do. So when he says, Peter, what is that to you? He's saying, don't be distracted by comparison, Peter. Don't get your eyes off of the goal here. Rivet them back on me. I want you to be fully present to me right now, Peter. Don't get distracted. So um, if we think about this story then and ask the question, or, or, or maybe try to finish the sentence again. Let's, let's do it that way. Let's say that Jesus believes it's important to maintain our focus on the present because of what? He believes it's important to maintain our focus on the present because of what? Um, well, he's wanting us, I think he, uh, what we can take from this is he's not wanting us to get distracted by insignificant details about the past or the future, about other people. He doesn't want us to get distracted by comparing ourselves to other people's stories 
He doesn't want us distracted because he wants us to be here in the present moment. Because if you're not in the present moment, you're not really in reality. And he wants Peter to live in the reality that he's been given. Because salvation and redemption is in the present moment. He doesn't want Peter distracted off of that. This, what he's doing with Peter is really trying to ground him in the present moment so that he can offer himself fully to people in the present moment again. So I love this little interchange because Jesus is really saying to Peter, the mission I have for your life is all going to be lived out in the present moment. You can't be distracted by things that, that are going on in other people's lives or what you, th- what, what, what you uh, lived in the past or what you expect to live in the future. I need you to be in the present moment. So, you know, small children are naturally focused on the present. They, they live in the present moment as if the past and the future don't even exist. They're fully invested in the now of this moment. And they're, they're sort of militantly unconcerned about the not now. They don't really account for the external realities of life or the comparisons with others because they're fix, fixated really on the, the treasure box of this moment in time. So when my daughter Emma was 10, she came home from school after having this in-depth, excited, animated conversation with one of her best friends about that friend's upcoming trip to Hawaii. So my, my daughter Emma came home positively evangelistic about this trip to Hawaii. She, she went on and on about all the things her friend said she was going to be able to do on this tropical island paradise. So much fun. And so I said in response to Emma, um, wow, that sounds incredible. And then Emma looked at me and said, dad, when are we going to go to Hawaii? And I, and I did what adults do. I looked back and I said, you know, dear, that's really asking for too much. And I could just see her whole face clouded over, her 10-year-old face just clouded over because it didn't make any sense. How could something that was this much fun be too much? Uh, that, and what I did is what most adults do. I, I, I kind of, in a, in a sort of subtly knowing way, said, you don't really know what you're asking for. What I'm really saying is, you don't know how much it costs to go to Hawaii and how much time it would take and, and all of the difficulties that it would visit upon our family. We just can't do it. We don't have the money to do this. And you're asking something that's really beyond what you should ask, but you don't know it. So I'm just going to kind of, <laughs> I, I, I guess the best way to say it is our adult response to this is mildly disrespectful to the ignorance of our children. But this natural bent in children, what happened in Emma, where she's asking too much, uh, Jesus actually loved that about children. It's in large part why he wanted to upend and challenge the conventional attitudes about children in his culture. He loved something about uh, a child's focus on the present moment. Uh, Here's a little passage from Luke 18. One day, some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom, of, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. 
So Jesus here, not just here, but throughout his ministry, um, repeatedly told people that they needed to become more like little children if they were going to enter the kingdom of God. What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God anyway? Well, the kingdom of God is the culture of the Trinity. It's the way things work in the hometown of the Trinity. <laughs> it's it's the, the priorities and values and characteristics of their life. It's how things work. And he's saying, you won't be able to live in that kingdom, to embrace it, to, to, um, to accept and value the values of that kingdom, unless you, unless you become like a child again. And in a way, what he's saying is that unless we become like children and focus on this moment in time um, and live and invest ourselves in this moment of time, we won't be able to live like people of the kingdom. So the question is, why is a child's focus on the present moment so important to Jesus? Why would he emphasize this so much? Let's just take the premise that part of it is that a child focuses on the present moment um, because that's where life exists. So our opportunity to make a difference in the world, our opportunity to live out our calling and who we are, is only in the present moment, if you think about it. You can't change the past, and you can't script the future. It's only in the present moment that our life's essence, our image of God essence, can make a real and lasting difference in the people around us. So he wants us to stay riveted in this moment because this moment, this present moment, is when we can actually impact others. And in the present moment, we can be fully conscious and aware that, that our presence in the world matters. We have agency in the present moment to change things, to influence things. Think about this. Relationships really only happen in the present moment. A relationship can't be lived in the past, and it certainly can't be lived in the future. A relationship can only be lived in this present moment. And relationships are everything to Jesus. It is the portal through which we are changed and transformed. It is the portal through which we understand intimacy. It's the portal through which every good thing that we ever experience in life comes through relationship. And relationships only exist and are nurtured in the present. The future, by the way, will become the present at some point. Everything points to the present. <laughs> The past informs the present, the future will eventually become the present. And that future will be very much impacted by the way we carry ourselves in this present moment. Our future moments are really determined by what we do in the present moment. I have a friend of mine who, who said that often we think of life as like floating on a river, or, or that life is a river, or that we are a river <laughs> flowing through life. And he said, uh, actually, we're more like landscape. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? And he said, we are shaped by our past. And we're in a way too shaped by our future. Um, we are like the landscape the river runs through because these things shape us. So it's important to be present in the present moment so that the effect of that river can shape us into who Jesus wants us to be. If we are not living in the present moment, we're not really reflecting God. Now think about this. This will blow your mind a little bit. God lives outside of time. 
The past, present, and future are all the same to him. Time is not a thing to him. It's only a, time as a linear concept is only a thing to us. But to God, all moments are present. There is no difference between the past, present, and future because all moments are present to him. So when we are living in the present moment, we are most like God. Because when we live in the present moment, we are living the way he does. Even though he recognizes that for us, there is a past and a future, there isn't for him. So when we live in the present moment, we are reflecting his way of life, his character most. All right, gang, to, to close off today, let's just close with uh, a, a way of maybe staying engaged in our present moment. Um, that it's a strategy that you probably have heard of. It's called mindfulness. Now, uh, yes, mindfulness is a funny word. It, it, it uh, is derived from originally from the Buddhist practice of meditation, but it's actually a misnomer because uh, mindfulness really describes the way Jesus lived and the way he engaged others in life. So the editors of Psychology Today describe mindfulness as a state of active, open attention to the present. A state of active, open attention to the present. And that is a great description of how Jesus lived his life. He was always active and open and attentive to the present moment. You think about all of the encounters he had. The woman who touched the, the, the hem of his cloak he could have been focused on the future. I'm headed to, to this guy's house to heal his daughter who's, who's about to die. But instead, he is focused on the present moment and recognizes that power has gone out of him. And he stops risking that little girl's life. He stops to be in the present moment with this woman who needs both physical healing and soul healing. Every sing single example of Jesus engaging people shows him in a state of active open attention on the present. So uh, let's, let's explore mindfulness here at the close of the podcast today. And it's just a, a very simple way of slowing down and being present in your presence. <laughs> I know it's a funny way of saying that, but um, one way to do that is to slow down and experience your world through your five senses in a more intentional way. So let, let's just take the, one of the five senses uh, to experiment with this. Let's, ex, let's explore sight right now, since maybe some of you are driving listening to this podcast. Let's explore sight. So I'd like you to just find something in your immediate landscape, something small that you can fix your gaze on. So uh, whether you're driving or not driving, find something in your immediate environment that you can simply fix your gaze on. And I just want you to Stare at that thing. Let your gaze rest on it for about 30 seconds here. So find that. If you're driving, find something through your, through your windshield that will allow you to keep looking at the road, but fixate on something in front of you that is small and that you can uh, give your whole attention to. So for 30 seconds, you're looking at that thing, you're gazing at it. I'd like you to think about now what, what about the colors of that thing do you like or not like? Is there something about it that either draws you to it or repels you to it from it? Um, is there something that that thing reminds you of in your past? What, what does it remind you of? Something maybe from your childhood, that thing you're looking at right now. 
And is that a good memory or a bad memory? Is there something uh, about the thing that you're gazing at, at right now that taps into a hope you have for your life? What is that hope? Um, and, and how is it related to that object? When you, and when you think about the object that your gaze is resting on right now, um, and you, if you had to describe it to someone who was blind and had never seen something like that before, how would you describe that to that blind person who's never seen such a thing before? What words would you use to describe it? Now think about the words that just popped into your head to describe that thing. Do any of those words, could any of those words be used to describe Jesus? Which one? And why? Well, there you have it, gang. There's just a little tiny experiment in mindfulness. You can see all we're doing really is paying ridiculous attention to our environment. We're, instead of uh, blasting our way through our environment, we're slowing down to savor our environment. The idea is to live our whole lives savoring, not just our environment, but other people as well. To live mindfully leads us to slow down and live in the present moment, to appreciate and to soak in the present moment. It's a way of simply, like I said, slowing us down so that we can pay better attention to the beauty all around us. And part of that uh, mindfulness mindset also means that we slow down to pay better attention to Jesus. We savor him more. Instead of blowing past things that he says and does, we slow down to savor them. All right, gang. Um, thanks. Thanks for listening. And again, this is paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. You, uh, this is season five, episode 30. And if you want to check out the links that I've mentioned uh, on, the, on the podcast today, just go to paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. Again, you're going to look for season five, episode 30. Look for the links there and you can, uh, you can sign up for the pre-launch team for Eyewitness or you can head on over to the new, the brand new, Jesus-Centered Daily website and get a 10-day a, a sampler from that. So uh, I look forward to next week when we'll be talking with Jeff White about that book, Eyewitness, and about authenticity. This, again, is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. <laughs>